Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Day. I'm Brittany Lohenboss. I'm James Cohn. And I'm Hannah Rassinen. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks. Our last episode of the year, <gasps> and also one of those milestone episodes where we're tackling a big topic. Yay! Where we try to sound smart for an hour. We do it once a year. <laughs> That's all <laughs> it takes we it all muster. out of me. It's all to be trash all the way down beyond this episode. <laughs> How have y'all been? Anybody cramming for like the best movies of the year list making stuff? Because that's what we got next on the docket. Yes. Yes? Yeah. I've I've been cramming. Just trying to like dry out every single streaming service mm-hmm. that I've like subscribed to to watch every 2022 movie I possibly can to have like a really good litter of movies <laughs> to pick from. I love this mix of metaphors. <laughs> I am on a lot of cough medicine. <laughs> so, um, so, Brittany's so doing great. I didn't want to. I didn't want to like call you out on it, but you sound sick, right? You're like, quite sick. I'm not like you're dying, right? You're, <laughs> you're not well, correct? So I've just been like really boogery, and there's some stuff in my ears that won't come out. I'm sorry you have to hear no, this. But <laughs> just so you know, I didn't But now think... I'm not as boogery. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I was not thinking, wow, Brittany sounds so sick. You sound slightly congested. You don't sound well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> James is legitimately concerned. People, people at work were telling me that. Like, my boss passed by. And they're like, are you okay? And I'm like, don't look at me. I'm a monster. Because <laughs> I had snot all over my face. Oh, God. But I'm like, I'm still going to get everything done. Oh no! Like pretty, please leave. Please go home. Please rest. Productivity is over. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't cram in best of the year stuff. Yeah. Maybe you should just rest. I want to do it. Okay. <laughs> Damn, no, determined. I'm okay. I actually feel good. It's yeah. just you know when you're on the last mile and it's just like you know I just yeah. need like there's like two ounces of like booger juice <laughs> in me and it's almost out and then I'm gonna be okay. That's right. Have you seen anything good lately? <laughs> that doesn't involve booger juice? Oh, man. I Actually, I have. Um, as I've been catching up with 2022, there's a movie that I really, really like that I watched um, called Resurrection with Rebecca Hall. I oh, yeah. really like Rebecca Hall. Like, mm-hmm. There's something about her where like I can just watch her move, like her just her movement and like you know, she has like that really long neck yeah. and this very interesting yeah. like bird bird lady neck. Bird lady, mm-hmm. that's it. She's yeah. like a crane of a mm-hmm. woman. And I just yeah, and she's always playing in like weirdo stuff too, which is great. It seems like she's taken over the Elizabeth Moss like complete oh. and total emotional breakdown kind of roles mm. lately. Yes. But in this movie, she is like a um a career woman, single mother, and her daughter's getting ready to go to college. And there is like this guy, and it's, it's Tim Roth <laughs> who like mm-hmm. pops up. Of course, uh, yes, obviously. Yeah. And he like pops up in weird places, and then she's like, "Okay, this guy's stalking me." And then she becomes super paranoid, and then like her daughter's like, "You're losing your mind, mom. Like, fuck you. I'm leaving. You're going crazy. You can't like." She was like keeping her daughter inside. It's like there's a man out here, and he's gonna get us. And you start to question her sanity. But then she approaches this guy, and the more she has encounters with him, you realize that she did know him. And there's this incredible scene where 
um, someone who's like an intern at her job comes up to her and is like, hi, are, you know, are you okay? I'm just checking up on you. And then she like tells like her whole life story that is insanely traumatic that is tied to this man that's been following her with this like bizarre fucking secret. But it's like one of those scenes where the camera is just on her face while she's mm-hmm. having this monologue for like fucking it feels like 15 minutes and it's the most disturbing shit you've like ever heard and it is awesome that's a bergman move oh yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah you're right um but and it's really good like the secret is insane the ending is wild i liked it a lot yeah resurrection i think that was a sundance one of the sundance movies that i really really wanted to see um and i i also love rebecca hall and i f- Tim Roth is one of those actors that like he he's so good at playing just an absolute like sociopath scumbag. Yes. That I'm like, are you great at playing this person or is this who you are and you're like <laughs> is this portraying you? Yes. Are you yeah. drawing from experience? Right, here? Well, exactly. And also it's not like changed with age. Like no. he played the same scumbag when he was younger <laughs> and now thirty years later yeah. right. he's still the same guy playing those kind of characters. <laughs> How does this compare to the Nighthouse? Oh, I love Nighthouse like a lot more, but this is like it's gonna I think it'll be in my top. All right. Nice. I'll watch it, it was very yeah. good. Yeah, worth it. Wait, did the Nighthouse come out this year? It was last it was year. Last year. Okay, yeah. It's such a good movie. Yeah, like that one. Check out our best of twenty twenty one episode. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot what year it was. See the it's liner wild. notes. Yeah. And just another movie I watched that I really like from this year. Um, The Innocents. Um, it's a movie about these it's like a psychological thriller sort of um with a little sci-fi twist like there are all these kids that live in this apartment complex and they all like develop these weird powers while they're there Mm -hmm. but they're freaking horrible and well not all of them but like there's one who's like just the most terrifying child ever like does horrible things and then he'll cry but then he like keeps doing them where oh he freaks me out but a lot of this stuff like gets under your skin because of what they do with like the powers they have like they start to hurt like their parents and they kill animals and stuff like that like it's it's crazy but it's really good um so that was good as well like I didn't think I was going to like it because I'm not always into like the, you know, I have secret powers, you know, that I never knew I had before in this movie, like that kind of stuff. I normally don't like buy into it, but this was just so unsettling. It made me very uncomfortable. Cool. Those are both on Shudder, right? They are. Oh, man. I'm so excited to watch those. Yes. So, um, so Brandon, what have you been watching? Have you been cramming? I have officially cut it off. I'm done <laughs> trying to find new stuff. Good for you. Unless there's something in the theater I want to see, I'm not going to try to like play catch up anymore. I've seen over a hundred movies that came out this year. Like I feel like I've done my homework. Wow. Uh, but in those last few weeks where I was watching a lot of stuff, I did find two titles that cracked my top 20. I have not ordered these movies yet, but, uh. I did watch the new Bertrand Mandicho, who directed The Wild Boys, which I've talked about on the show way too many times. His new one is set on an alien planet called After Blue, Mm. and the movie's called After Blue, Dirty Paradise. The planet seems to be made entirely of glitter. Like, it's just (laughs) all glitter um, in the sky, in the sea, in the sand. Um, This 
teenager whose mother is the hairdresser on a planet where everyone is a woman. All the men have died since they moved there because their hair started growing on the inside of their bodies instead of the oh, outside and oh, choked that them must to death. Feels so bad. All the women are living sort of in this utopian orgy planet mm. where they're all just having sex all the time, except there's a demonic figure named Kate Bush <laughs> who uh, kills some of the women sometimes for her own pleasure and may also be an evil djinn type who can grant wishes. Ooh. The daughter of the planet's hairstylist falls in love with this Kate Bush figure. She's like drawn to Kate Bush. And um, you know? Kate Bush kills a bunch of locals and she doesn't do anything to stop it. So they have become outcasts where they have to go into the wilderness and hunt and kill Kate Bush. I have been wanting to see this so bad. It's wild. Like the cover of it, at least like the one that I've seen, there's probably different versions. It's so gross. Like there's like just a hole in someone's head. Yes. You can see all like the guts and blood and Uh, stuff and all the edges. It's so gross. There's also this creature where they have a similar hole in their head because their face is a geode. So it's one of those like concave, like crystal formations Mm -hmm. in someone's face. Um, Okay. The Wild Boys is like my favorite movie that's come out in my lifetime. <laughs> this one's not as good, but like, come on, that's like a high standard for me. Like, it's kind of a sci-fi acid western, like kind of a Hodorowski style movie, but um, it's got that like seventies futurism look to it, and just every frame is fucking gorgeous. It just it's a little slow. <laughs> so if you can like get past the like pacing, like it's it's a feast for the eyes. Cool. Uh, and it's and set on a lesbian orgy planet where there's a killer Kate Bush. I mean, you kind of have to see that. Yeah. You cannot argue with that. Yeah. One I would actually rate kind of higher uh, was called Please Baby Please. It's Andrea Riseborough and one of the dipshit kids from Harry Potter, like one of the, like the lower down the cast people. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know his name, but like he plays like a dweeb in that like series. Neville Longbottom, maybe. Sure. <laughs> I have no clue. Uh, I'm kind of recognizing from like, like the posters or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they're a married couple in the 1950s, and they witness a biker gang who all dress like Marlon Brando beat up and kill another couple on the street. And they're both incredibly turned on by this like act of violence. <gasps> and they start questioning their personal relationship with masculinity. The husband is kind of in love with the biker gang in like a sexual way. Like he's like, maybe I'm gay. And the wife is like, maybe I'm a man. And she like wants to be one of them. Um, So it is kind of like a wild boys scenario. Mm -hmm. Like there's like a lot of gender stuff going on where people sort of lose their definition of how they see themselves. And there's a lot of open academic discussions of like, what is masculinity and like, Mm -hmm. how do you perform it and stuff? But it's also shot like a music video from the 80s. Like uh, it's got those beautiful cool. neon colors and everyone dresses in all this like Tama Finland and like Marlon Brando yeah. fetish gear. Ugh. And like uh, the wife has all these um, fantasies where like all the biker gangs are using like household appliances on her. Like they're like um, whips and chains. Like they're like yeah. pressing the iron on her butt. <laughs> like uh, It's really fun. It's really over the top and it's like academia and Andrea Riseborough, without exaggeration, gives like my favorite performance of the year. Like, yeah. she is feral in this. <laughs> She's got this like Jerry Blank kind of like making fun of everything that she does, like attitude. But she's doing that while pretending to be Marlon Brando in the in the Wild <laughs> Ones. I don't know. It's it's a crazy movie. Cool. Wow. <laughs> and it's really cheap. Like it's like a community theater kind of feeling. Ugh. 
who else is in it? Demi Moore's in it briefly. Uh, really? Col- Cola Scola's in it. Carl Glusman, who's in a bunch of Gaspar Noe stuff. You said Demi Moore was in yes. it? Yes. What? How? She's just there. Like, she plays like a fabulous woman who lives in the building and has like a couple like really extended, ridiculous monologues. Because I haven't heard of her doing anything in years. Yeah. And she's given like the treatment of like, oh my God, it's Demi Moore. It's Demi Moore. (laughs) (laughs) The movie like stops. How are you here? Yeah. In this like cheap, weird, queer sex fantasy movie. Oh, you just said Demi Moore was there and I I have to be there. Hell yeah. (laughs) I want to be there for. Andrew Riseborough wanting to be Marlon Brando. That performance blows my mind. Like yeah. I was howling with laughter with her like <laughs> making a face, you know? Yeah. Or pretending that a beer bottle was her dick for like 10 seconds. Ugh. Like it was just like one of those things where like every move she made was like incredible. Yeah. Like Christine Baranski in Mamma Mia, yes. where it's just like everything she does is like totally thrilling in these like <laughs> kind of like micro physical ways. Anyway, what have y'all been watching? I watched exactly one movie in the last two weeks. Me too. Yeah. Okay. So I'll let you talk about, or we can both talk about that together. But the thing, so I'm in pure survival mode for work. I'm almost done for the year. Um, And when I do that, I watch this. Like, it's like, okay, this is like me truly like revealing my guilty pleasures to the world. So there's this <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons live play with like, it's like a series that goes on and has multiple seasons. And it's like six improv comedians playing D&D together in like various scenarios. Like they did one season that's like a John Hughes, like teen movie, but like fantasy they're doing one now that's like it's a fairy tale series but it's also horror so everybody's like the characters are these uh like pinocchio or sleeping beauty or red riding hood but it's like these like twisted versions of the fairy tales so that's what i've been like delving deeply into like every single day just to get myself through to christmas What's the series called? It's called so it's called Dimension 20. I can't recommend it really because <laughs> it's like every episode is like 2 hours long, but if anybody listening to this likes uh Dungeons and Dragons and also likes improv comedy, it's very enjoyable. I know that's like a very popular genre of podcast is like yes. people playing D&D yeah. in audio form. And I think it's gotten much more popular over the last few years. Like the newest edition of D&D is a lot more accessible than the like, like, you know, in the 80s and 90s, it had this um, reputation of like people like diving through rule books in basements and it's still kind of like that but it's like really blossomed in popularity over the last few years um and it's just yeah it's just like very fun to like listen to people joking around and like the like the tactics are fun i don't know i'm just very into it so um that's my little guilty pleasure for anybody Aren't um, they making a Dungeons and Dragons? They are movie? with Chris Pine. Holy Chris shit! Pine. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and me and me and Nora both play together, so we were like watching the trailer and like, ah, oh, there's the druid is turning into an owl bear. It was very, <laughs> <laughs> it was very exciting. But the movie that James and I both watched together uh, was The Menu. 
which ah. is a 2022 release. Did anybody see that? No, Boomer said wait for it. streaming. Yeah. Last episode. Yeah, I would that agree was kind with of that. The vibe. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. It was weird, though, because like, I saw the trailer a lot going to the theaters and like, oh, that looks like a good movie. It's like sort of like satirizing. Fine dining. Fine dining. Yeah. And a little bit of like the most dangerous game. A little bit of that. It's weird, though. Like, I was entertained, but it's totally like something I could have just saw on streaming. I chuckled throughout, but there was no like, there wasn't that like laugh out loud, like the the triangle of sadness, like had that cathartic really out there with the vomit and the pissing and the shit. <laughs> like You say that in the exact order every time that movie comes up and I love it. Yeah. <laughs> with the vomit and, and the pissing and, and the, the shitting. But it's so- uh, Mamma Mia. It never quite got to that level of satire. Um, it was just kind of a mild chuckle throughout, but I, I did enjoy it. I don't know. Ralph Fiennes is chewing up the scenery in here, and Anna Taylor Joy is, you know, her character is probably the most like well rounded of the bunch. No, I wouldn't necessarily say anybody is well rounded. I feel like she is by default the most relatable just because she's not a total caricature, but she's also just kind of playing a person that is like this is all bullshit and i'm not into it and like i just want real food which is fine but but, like- I, but i think that was my main thing coming out of it was like this is the second film i've seen this year where the punchline is sort of like oh these fine dining fools like man just give me some comfort food and I don't know. There's a place for fine dining. I love to eat an expensive yeah. meal. Yeah. Can't do it often because I can't afford it, but it's exquisite. Like it's an art form in itself. Right. Right. And there is nuance to the critique of like fine dining, but this is going for more of the like very overall like critique of just it's so pompous and it's just all money and the, yeah. the foams and the gels and, the, <laughs> you know, and they're poking a lot of fun. But like to me, as someone that, is kind of a foodie. I'm like, that shit's sort of cool. Right. Every once in a while to go to eat at a fine dining place and get a deconstructed taco. I mean, yeah, it's ridiculous, but I don't know. There's a time and a place for it. Right. And the movie didn't really have any nuance for its critique of fine dining. Yeah. And that bothered me a little bit. Mm. And I think with Triangle of Sadness, that's not necessarily a nuanced satire, but it is, I think it's very effective. And he, Ruben Ostlin, really hones in on like specific behaviors that feel very true and real. And like he focuses on the hypocrisy. Whereas, yeah, with fine dining, like they present. The movie is organized in courses, so like first course, second course, and it oh, has cool. the. It shows the the meal and it has that breakdown of ingredients like in chef's table and one of them is like it's like scallops from the sea and it has all of this uh kind of aquatic foliage surrounding it and i thought yeah that is cool you know that is interesting i mean i think there were elements of it that were good like i think the film focused a little bit on critics who are no longer able to enjoy fine dining because they've kind of become so inured to it. It's like they're just looking for like opportunities to critique. 
But also, like, yeah, I love fine dining. And I think it is a genuine art form when it's in an expensive restaurant. And it's also a genuine art form when it's a cheap burger. I think the thing about Triangle of Sadness, too, is like, yeah, it's not nuanced, but like it pushes what it's doing to such a ridiculous extreme. It sounds like what y'all are describing. It's like not very extreme in any way. Like you get some like mild chuckles out of it. It's not like really pushing itself. Yeah. Not in the fine dining. I mean, it pushes the like violence aspect a little bit. You don't think so? No. <laughs> really? Wow, okay. No, I, yeah, I mean- there It's are, violent, like people are getting murdered. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, but it's- But I feel I like a was, movie like Pig pushed it, that kind of fine dining thing in a more interesting direction than this does. Mm-hmm. It's just like a dangerous game where they happen to be like at a fine dining right. restaurant. Yeah, and it's it seemed like there was kind of an issue with editing too, like- there's a lot of conversation between Ralph Fiennes' character and Anya Taylor-Joy's, and mm. he's trying to figure out, because she isn't really supposed to be there. Like, her date was going to bring somebody else, and then he brought her instead. So he's all up. The chef is all upset about that because he planned this night perfectly, and everything has to go according to the menu. So he's having these little side conversations with her every, like, Every 15 to 20 minutes, like, are you on their side or are you on our side? And it really interrupts the flow of the movie. And there were scenes in the trailer that it's like you think they are going to have a particular meaning in the movie. And then it's like it kind of loses its meaning in the context of the movie. It's like this is this was great for the trailer, but it's not as impactful in the actual film. It's fine. It's good to stream. Yeah, not something yeah, you need don't, to see in theaters. Yeah. It didn't help that that trailer played for months and months before the movie came yeah, out. Yeah, and I think that's part <laughs> it really of it. I was just like, up, yeah. the first time I saw it, I thought, "Ooh, this looks cool. I'm excited to see this." Yeah. And then the fiftieth time I saw it, <laughs> I was like, "Okay, this needs to come out so I can watch it and get it over with." Maybe I'll watch it in about three years when I've forgotten everything yeah, I've seen right. in that trailer thirty <laughs> times. <laughs> What's the menu about? <laughs> yeah. Well, that was some like best of the year potential catch up. Uh, doesn't sound like everything made the cut there, but like uh, <laughs> today, before we get to that full ritual, we're going to talk about the best movies of all time. Or are they? Ah! <laughs> they were, They've but they're not anymore. Shoved from their gleaming thrones. <laughs> we're going to join the discourse and talk about the sight and sound top 100 list that came out this year. Uh, comes out every 10 years. There's just a shakeup in the canon. So we have to discuss mm. what happened. That's right. <laughs> and we're specifically talking about the cast-offs, the movies that used to be on the list but aren't anymore. The Fallen Soldiers uh, that we lost in 2022. That's right. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. According to the director of this film, Louis Bunuel, the only rule he and the film's co-screenwriter, Salvador Dali, had for themselves when making this movie was that no idea or image will be accepted that might lend itself to a rational explanation of any kind. The goal certainly seems well met, though that hasn't stopped people from attributing symbolism and all kinds of meanings to the film for the past 84 years, something that Boonwell found ridiculous, but also surprising. That also disappointed both Boonwell and Dolly, since they worked so hard to make sure nothing in the film was symbolic of anything. I'm a little worried this episode's going to be a throwback to me and James just bickering about stuff. <laughs> really? Why do you say that? I don't know. I just feel like we're going to be on the opposite sides of the thing here. Because we, we were talking about the sight and sound top 100 changes. And you and I had some like 
almost philosophical differences about like how the list was handled this year. And I think a lot of the internet discourse has been about the change-ups, like, especially like newer movies like uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Get mm-hmm. Out and Moonlight being added to the list, while some of like the seminal classics that like changed the way filmmaking has been made in the past like fell yeah. off the list. A lot of the discourse also has been about how uh, Jean Dielman has now the greatest film of all time, yeah, which is a three-hour slow cinema feminist. I, I want to call it a troll almost. How, how many of us have seen that film? I have not. I have so not. I haven't. And I have. Y'all, it's on my watch list, and I look at it every day, and I'm like, I can't. <laughs> not today. I've I've watched it. Okay. And it's very good. Oh, okay. And it's long, and it's very slow, but I think its slowness adds to the effect, because by the end, you really have been sitting with this person like in their day-to-day menial tasks. Mm-hmm. You feel like you know them, and you empathize with them, and- it's a beautiful film. Is it the best movie of all time? I mean, it, who's to say? Obviously, the critics have decided it is the best for now. Do you know what it is about it that like people commend it for? I think slow cinema in general is very popular yeah. right mm-hmm. now. Like feminist slow cinema, and it's like really personal and realistic too. Like there's a realism about it that I think is beautiful. No, it's a it's a beautiful film. I, like. I'm not going to debate, does it deserve to be number one or... I mean, but it is like, the ranking is based on the aggregate of right, right. like the appearances on lists. Yeah, like 1,600 people named 10 movies apiece. This was right. the one that was mentioned the most. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's just like different ranking institutions kind of struggle with how to categorize rankings in general. And some people do like... You know, you have it in a list order and then the results are weighted based on like the number of times it appeared on a list and the order that it appeared on in the list. But this is just like a pure 10 movie. So I don't think you can talk about it like this is the best movie of all time. It's like this was considered one of the best movies by the most people. But the past, though, like. The reason that people think of Citizen Kane as the greatest movie of all time is because it was on the top of this list for like multiple decades. Yeah. And like there was a big shakeup recently where Vertigo took that top spot. And they are kind of canonized as like the great film because Mm -hmm. of that. And I think it is interesting to have something so uncommercial and challenging at the top. Something where like even I, like we try to push ourselves here Mm -hmm. and. When we were making a list of things to watch today, I initially picked a movie that was three hours and 20 minutes. And I was like, I don't have time to fucking sit down <laughs> right. and watch that. Like, yeah. yeah, let's shrink it back down. I ended up picking a short instead. But yeah, I think it's like interesting that that movie has that high of a profile now. I saw someone tweet yesterday that um, the New York City library system has four copies of Jean Dielman and there are like 127 holds on. Oh, my right God. Now. Wow. Because. Like, by canonizing it, you're making sure more eyes are on it. Yeah. It's an interesting point of discussion. And I'm more likely to watch it now. And I'm even someone who likes the couple Chantal Ackerman movies I've seen. Yeah. I just haven't happened to seen that one because it's so long. Right. It's, it's streaming on HBO. Yeah. And Criterion as well. Yeah. Oh, nice. And I think one of the reasons I was thinking you and I might bicker too is because when we were first looking at the movies that fell off, my favorite one was Unshan Andalou from 1929. And you were like, what? 
<laughs> yeah. You're like, yeah, they cut an eyeball, whatever. Like you're very dismissive of it. I don't know. I watched it again for this and I still feel the same way. <laughs> That's interesting to me. So, okay. Louis Benuel, his very first movie, like, and he is like undeniably one of the more influential filmmakers, like in the history of the art form. It's a collaboration with Salvador Dali. And they tried to make a movie that was entirely nonsense. Like <laughs> the two of them both had separate dreams. I believe Bunuel had the dream about clouds cutting across a moon that then turned into an eye. And then Dolly had a dream about ants crawling out of a human hand. Mm-hmm. And they were like, let's just make a movie of that. Let's take those two ideas and like stretch it out into a 20 minute experiment. Mm-hmm. And the experiment was how do we make an art form out of the moving image without making any logical sense whatsoever. So like this film fucks with you constantly. Uh, it keeps telling you different time periods, like eight minutes earlier, yeah. 10 days later, like 40 years in the past. Like it just jumps around, but you're watching a series of just events. Most of them in like an apartment building and the area outside the building, like the public outside getting hit by cars and like uh, riding their bikes while cross-dressing and like just doing odd things. Yeah. And then what appears to be a domestic squabble inside the apartment that keeps changing the terms of what people are doing. Sometimes they're dragging two pianos that have dead donkeys inside of them. Sometimes they're playing with each other's tits. Uh, Sometimes they're watching the ants crawl out of their hand. And what I find fascinating about this is that even though both filmmakers explicitly say this movie does not make any sense, we tried to make something that has no logical pattern to it. Every time you watch it, your brain tries to make, even just yeah. now, like I was trying to describe what happens in it. I'm trying to make a pattern or a meaning or a connection out of what unfolds on the screen. And I think that is an interesting experiment with what you can do with the art form in the same way that like Jean Dielman, like making you watch someone peel potatoes for eight minutes so that like the smallest differences in her reactions to what she's doing means so much because there's nothing else happening on screen. That's an interesting way that you could push the art form into a new area. This one, like it's an early film. It pushes cinema into my favorite corner of it, which is simulation of dreams and dream logic. Mm -hmm. That's what I love about movies. I love that they're basically a dream that we can share. And I think this one is nightmarish and sexually explicit and like, Everything I usually look for when I watch movies. I, I I did like how perverse it was, but like I don't I like my surrealism like meshes on the afternoon where it's like there's some kind of deeper underswelling of like meaning to it, not just like let's put absurd images together and then you have to project your own meaning onto it. This like meshes on the afternoon, for instance, is like there's something grandiose and like deep about it and the way that this feels just sort of on the surface like let's take a bunch of weird images and put them together and we're jokesters and let the audience make up their own meaning and by expanding the pool of people who are voting on this meshes of the afternoon was added to this list like pretty prominently i don't know that maya darren would have made that movie if this one didn't exist but that movie might be a better movie than this one. I can't tell you. I mean, I love them both. So I don't yeah. know, like, I can't rank them personally, but like, it's interesting that this one fell off and that one was added. I think that's like a good sign of like both how more women are being added to the canon. And then also how some of the older stuff that like 
basically define what you can do with the art form or like starting to fall off to make room for like newer editions. I think I fall somewhere in between both of you. I definitely feel like this movie has echoed throughout like the history of cinema and I really enjoy the associations that come out of the movie like my favorite parts are the cuts from one object to a similar object like the the eye to the moon and then there's like the there's like a woman's armpit to an urchin like I really love kind of forcing someone to make relationships between those two things Um, but I think that like meshes of the afternoon is absolutely like I, I definitely love that film more than I like this one and I think it's like honing the craft but I think the thing that is really meaningful about this film or at least one thing is like you can connect two disparate things and people will find a relationship between those two things so like if you actually do want to create meaning rather than just like presenting something absurd like you can kind of trust that people will make the connection without you having to make like an obvious relationship like i think that's super valuable i think it's interesting that like it's impossible not to do that yeah like it's something about the idea of like putting images in a certain order like your brain really wants to make sense of it Mm -hmm. the fact that that's like compulsory like whether or not you want to do it i think that's interesting yeah my question about these two movies, if we're going to compare it to Meshes, is like, am I holding on to this one being important because it was one of the first like art films I ever saw? And I was taught this movie in a poetry class. I wasn't even taking a film yeah. like, studies class. It was like, this is what surrealism is. Watch this movie. You'll sort of get like what juxtaposition can do within that like mm-hmm. genre or art movement or whatever you want to call it. If I was shown Meshes of the Afternoon instead, and like maybe that being in this canon now, it'll be more likely to be taught in that context instead of Nandalu. Is anything lost there by that later work, which is maybe more coherent mm-hmm. and like thematically concise? Like, is that a lateral move? Is that like, does that change film history in any way? I don't know that this movie's in any danger of being forgotten right. or lost or anything. Like, it's pretty well canonized, whether or not it's on the sight and sound list. Mm-hmm. But that's just the kind of, like, thoughts that come to me as this stuff is shaken up, you know? Yeah. I liked it. I don't think I had any kind of um, experience like y'all had with it. <laughs> the reason I liked it is just because, like, oh, this is just a bunch of nonsense. Like... It's going to sound bizarre, but it reminded me so much of, like, I don't know if y'all do this, but, like, before I, like, you know, lie down, take the TV off, I'll, like, go through TikTok shit. Oh, yeah. And it felt just like that. Where, like, I didn't even have the want to make a connection because I was so disconnected between everything that was happening. It did make me think about, like, do I need to live my life watching a bunch of shit that doesn't make sense? <laughs> like, is this, fu- it's fulfilling. And I'm like, why is this so fulfilling? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, God dang it. I don't know, but I, I can't say anything bad about it. That's the thing is, so I, I guess I liked it. Yeah, I think like the thing that I, that really sets meshes of the afternoon apart is I am invested in this woman's story even though it's told yeah. in like a disjointed way. And it really reminds me of like, and you know, we've talked about it before, like just a foggy summer afternoon nap and kind of like the dread of like nightmares in the afternoon. So in addition to the really compelling 
imagery, I'm drawn through it on an emotional level. And that's totally missing for me in Unchan Andalou, except for like, when she's being assaulted by that man, you know, I'm just enraged. And then there are like specific images that bring up feelings in me, but it, but it's, I don't think that makes it a worse film necessarily, but like, if I were voting for the sight and sound list and I had to pick between those two, it's like, that's what sets the difference for me. Well, I think back to that Charlie Chaplin episode we did, where I was watching these like old silent films and it was like a pure distillation of everything that's come after it. And this feels like a good starting point, but not necessarily like the way I think about surreal, weird cinema now. I didn't quite feel with the characters and their emotional state in that way that I expect from like a modern film to like really feel something like it was pure image and very surreal and weird and all that stuff. But like it was lacking the like essence of, I don't know, like the way like a Charlie Chaplin movie encapsulates like pure essence of like slapstick. This wasn't that for me, it was like a start. It was a good starting point, but it didn't quite get to what a modern audience wants from a film well those movies are like trying to endear you and this is trying to rattle you which are like two different effects i think i mean i think they achieved what they set out to achieve like i think the film was absolutely a success you know when you're ranking or when you're trying to decide like what to include Mm -hmm. and what to exclude like i prefer meshes of the afternoon but like at what point do you have to acknowledge like You know, like you said, that wouldn't exist without this. Like, this is a fundamental building block. Like, I feel like I would feel obligated to say Unchan Andalou just because, like, it was the progenitor of so much. But, like, I don't know. Like, when can you kind of let that go, you know? I mean, personally, if I was voting for this list, I mean, this wouldn't be in my top 10 movies. I love this film, but I wouldn't put it up there. I would put 10 movies I personally love and, like, what I would love to see in cinema. I mean, the Wild Boys would be on my list, <laughs> but it would it would be a wasted vote because you know it's not going to make. But you this wouldn't cut. take into consideration like what was like films that were pivotal. You no, know, because I'm not. Yeah, we're not film historians here. We're like yeah. film fans. I, I yeah. hate putting that word on it because that conjures like Star Wars and everything else. But like, yeah, we are casual audiences. We are not academics on this yeah. show. But I do think there is value in this. I like. I think there is a free association that I love to see in movies that would not have been achieved if these people weren't pushing what this art form. There was only like 20 years old when they were doing this. Like they were like pushing what you could do with movies and like really opening it up to make the kinds of things that would be on my personal top 10 of all time list. Yeah. I also have to say that as we were watching it, I was like feeling a little lukewarm and then (laughs) that scene came where his face turns into her armpit and i was like okay i'm totally back so, on board this yeah. is cinema yeah yeah it, and it was it is really transgressive and yeah. like yeah when i think back to like a lot of the silent films that i've seen from that time period 
none of them are as weird or like out there and like sexual and yeah well, except for the as... dancing pig i mean that one's pretty out there yeah yeah true the <laughs> dancing <laughs> pig is out there. but you know what i mean like they were making weird ass art mm-hmm. over a hundred years ago i will say there is a sequel to this film quote unquote that's like this extrapolated to like a feature length called the age of gold uh lodge d'or uh and it's really good <laughs> like oh, uh, cool. it's a very horny movie and it does have like characters and plots sort of in a way that this one doesn't, but it also kind of goes into Bunuel's like kind of pet project, which is like making fun of the bourgeoisie on like a grander scale. I really like that one. It's it's not his best film, but it's a very interesting one. Mm. And, you know, a year ago when we did this like milestone episode where we try to tackle like a bigger topic, we talked about the art of the short film and how it's not very well respected anymore. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the sight and sound list, there aren't a lot of spaces for shorts to make the cut i want to say there were only three actual shorts yeah. there's one buster keaton movie that's over 45 minutes but there's maybe like is lejeté yeah. meshes of the afternoon and there's maybe one more that mm-hmm. i'm not conjuring but yeah there's really not that many slots for something to fit on there yeah if we had to lose this one i'm glad meshes of the afternoon took its like short yeah. film slot because it's very well deserved and mm-hmm. maya darren is highly influential and you know important as well, and she need, deserves to be recognized alongside Bunuel. But I also wonder in 30, 40 years, will there be something that can replace that, you know, meshes of the afternoon? And like as time goes on, like everything's going to push aside what came before it. That's sort of what I felt watching this was like, I get it. I get the influence. I feel like time has kind of moved on to where, again, if I'm like, does it deserve to be in the top 100? Like part of me says it should. And part of me says like, it doesn't like watching all these movies that we're going to talk about. I'm like, you know, the topic at hand is like, why did it shift out of the top Mm -hmm. 100? And with this one, like I kind of understand the influence, but, and I kind of understand why time has moved on. Some of the other ones we're going to talk about, maybe not as much, but yeah. My prediction gaming this out is I enjoyed two of these movies a lot, and I think two of them are very flawed. And the two that I very much enjoyed, I think we'll be back on this list later. Now, this is a very subjective, self-serving Ooh. opinion here. We'll be but back on the I list. I think okay. that we'll be back on the list in subsequent decades, especially mm-hmm. as a corrective where it's like, I can't believe Sean Andalou fell off. I need to place that yeah. on my list now to make sure it gets back on there. So that's one of the ones you think we'll be back yeah. on. Yeah, and I have one more, and the other two I did not enjoy. <laughs> oh maybe why I thought this might oh. be a contentious <laughs> argument. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. Yeah, you know... I do think this is a very important short film in the canon of film. And I I was also just, I was looking at our movies and I was looking to see if the directors that made these films still had a movie on the list. And I think there are two that still have a movie and two of them are off of the list. And Louise Bunuel is one of them. That's a travesty. Yeah, exactly. I feel like that's, I don't know, not unjust, but it doesn't feel right to me that he doesn't have any did, films did on the top Did he not do 100. Exterminating Angel and was that not Boonwell? I mean, that is him. Is that on the top 100 right now? No, no, no. I don't think it but is. That's, a that's his best movie for sure. Right. Yeah. That's a travesty to me. Like, I know we're talking about this film, but Exterminating Angel to me is like, one of my top ten. You think so? If you did, if you drafted like your ten favorite movies of all time, Exterminating Angel would be on the list. No, it'd probably be in like the top. 
and then it wouldn't yeah, make the cut. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you're really pushing me on it, like, no, it wouldn't be in my top ten. But yeah, but it's easy to see how that happens. Like, how was Bunuel not on the list? Well, if right. I listed out my ten favorite yeah. movies, maybe he wouldn't be on there either. Yeah, that's everyone's tough. probably so rating few. it differently. Yeah. like everyone's gonna pick their top list in a different movies. Yeah. yeah, I mean, two of my spots are going to Mamma Mia one and two. So like, <laughs> there are only really eight viable options. <laughs> silk or velvet knew all the other women who wore silk or velvet and everybody knew everybody else's family horse and carriage the only public conveyance was the streetcar a lady could whistle to it from an upstairs window and the car would halt at once and wait for her while she shut the window put on her hat and coat went downstairs found an umbrella told the girl what to have for dinner and came forth from the house too slow for us nowadays, because the faster we're carried, the less time we have to spare. All right. Um, so the fallen gem that I selected for us to watch is the Magnificent Ambersons from 1942. So um, this was written, produced, and directed by Orson Welles. And we did an episode not that long ago where we watched Citizen Kane. So this is my second Orson Welles movie that I've ever seen. <laughs> we did the sight and sound list. Then we did a Citizen Kane episode. Then yeah. we did a Vertigo episode. We were like really trying to like figure out the, like the top we're spots. It. Yeah, That's yeah, fine. we're it. So um, Orson Welles, like even though I've only seen these two films from him, they have a very similar style. There's like a you know whenever he like looks at past events in a film like the scenes are sort of fuzzed out on the edges which is very cool and he does this cool thing where the camera will be focusing on two individuals and as it slowly pulls away you're like how did this like camera get in this like really tight space but it's like they're just shifting furniture yeah. yeah which is so freaking cool and that happens in here too um he lost control of editing this movie to rko so this movie was going to be longer. It was going to have a happier ending. I thought the ending was going to be more depressing. Yes. I thought it was supposed yeah. to be happier. No, no they, they added made a it happy the happy ending. ending. Oh, because I didn't. Yeah. The we'll ending was it. the ending because it's based on a book and it's basically oh, the same ending as the book. It's based on. It feels on, so out of place in this yeah, movie. Yeah, it's I very yeah. strange. Which you could kind of tell and I'll get to it too where I just felt like the ending was too rushed and. That was. was what I was looking forward to the most. Yep. The fucking comeuppance. <laughs> um, so this is supposed to be a film about a wealthy family's decline due to the the uproar of the automobile industry. But to me, it came off as just a like asshole kid who never wants his mom to be happy. And I think that's what it was about. <laughs> and it's like and a he bit fucking of hates cars. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Fanny. So this family, the Ambersons, live in Indiana in this, like, crazy ornate mansion. And there's a, a gaggle of them. And not all of them are Ambersons, which confused the shit out of me. So in the mansion, there's, you know, the granddaddy Amberson, Major. He's he's the, you know, the father, the grandfather. His daughter, Isabel. 
is married to Wilbur, who's so boring that you kind of forget that he's there <laughs> um, and that he dies. And you and the folks who are actually characters are like, oh, he died. Um, <laughs> you just kind of forget about him. Well, they're married. And years ago, she was courted by this dude named Eugene. But it didn't work out between them because he like threw a snowball out a window or something like that. No, like, he, I guess he got so. wasted. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> he got wasted. Like so over himself. He fell on the vial player. Okay. Yeah. He was he- trying to serenade her and got drunk and publicly embarrassed her and became yeah. like a point of gossip so in the town. She was never going to be with him because of that. But she always loved him. She married this boring guy. And to overcompensate for her bad choice and her shitty life, she spoiled the crap out of her son, George. And he is like a total terror. A cad. Yes. And then we have Fanny, who is Wilbur's sister, who's great, played by Miss Agnes Moorhead, who is amazing. She's the, you know, grandmother of Bewitch. Um, (laughs) Also in love with Eugene. Yes, and in love with Eugene, where it took me a second to realize it, where I'm like, are y'all both sisters? But no, it's like they're sister-in-laws. Yeah. But ugh, I guess it's a small town. <laughs> so George runs amok around this town, just being the biggest asshole. And, you know, he's this little boy, but has like long golden curls, like Goldilocks, <laughs> that like go to his like lower back. And he wears like kilts and stuff like that. And rides around town on his horse and carriage just being an asshole. And every time he's an asshole, like, everyone in this town is like, he'll get his comeuppance. And they say that a lot. So that is pretty much, like, (laughs) what I was looking forward to this whole movie was just, like, watching this shithead get torn down. So a couple years pass, and there's – he's – in college he's a college boy and he comes back to town and they throw this like party on for him at the mansion and he meets this girl named lucy they start to like hit it off a little bit turns out that you lucy is the daughter of eugene who used to like you know have that thing with his mother and like eugene starts to kind of court her his mother while she's married and at this point, I'm like, I, yeah, I kind of forgot she was married, like, halfway through it, too. <laughs> I just kept forgetting. And Lucy and George. George are having, like, their relationship. And Eugene is works in, like, the car industry. And George, like, looks down on him for it. And, like, it's almost like George is the old man in the situation where it's like you young kids and your automobiles like this shit will never work which i found like so fascinating because i'm like shouldn't you it'd be like the opposite almost like you should be like cool cars are neat i'm like 20 and like all horse and buggies yes (laughs) (laughs) well i think his like major character flaw is that he feels like he's on top of the world already and he wants nothing to change Mm -hmm. like he like he doesn't want to get a job he doesn't want to do anything with himself he just wants to stay like he doesn't want to get dirty and that's the story of the ampersons that's it like on top of the world for a period of time (laughs) yeah but they don't adapt not for a lot yeah so you know major dies dad dies and then there's the time where you're like okay like isabel and eugene could totally be together and like george big old asshole does everything in his power to not let that happen um even when his mom's dying he comes to visit her and he's like yeah no like yeah insane he's horrible and 
there's like some kind of like Oedipus shit going on here too. I think For with sure. his mom. There is some Electra shit happening too. I think <laughs> a lot of a lot of incestual stuff yeah. going on. They're rich, close, tender feelings. <laughs> what is that? Yes. Like, the wealthy are always like that. That's right. Do you think so? <laughs> they keep it yeah. amongst themselves. I'm obsessed yeah. with myself. That's what I was saying about like Trump and how he's in love with one daughter, but he hates the other. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I also think that's like a high form of egoism. It's like, yeah. you know, I'm in love with myself, so I'm in love with my progeny. Who else like, is good enough my for My blood's you? so right. pure. <laughs> That's right. Keep the blood flowing yeah. through. Yeah, and Lucy's just- <laughs> Only my just cousins are good enough for me. You. I just want to live with Eugene. That's my dream. Yeah. Speaking of cousins, not the only incestuous narrative we'll be talking about today. Mm. No. Oh, my God. <laughs> Incest. So, Isabel dies. Shortly after Isabel dies- major dies like you know big granddaddy and it turns out that like they have no fucking money left a shit ton of bad investments were made and like their fortune just goes away and all the while eugene is stupid rich because automobiles have taken off and he's you know made good decisions and things like that so the shift happens but like what pissed me off so much is because you're just waiting to like watch this person crumble and it doesn't happen until the like the whole process like you want to watch like them slowly lose their money and lose their minds like i i wanted to see all that shit and it just it's like boom okay they're dead okay we don't have any money and then george is like okay i guess i gotta go get a job and get dirty with chemicals or something like that <laughs> i did like that part he's like i'm gonna sign up to work with dynamite right right because i need factory. money quick i can't do this lawyer shit right. this law right. stuff I like i want to work with dynamite right i can't invest in a career it <laughs> simply won't work and then what happens is is he doesn't really get his fucking comeuppance because which, I mean, this is probably the happy ending, happier ending that was fudged in here. But it's like, um, he loses all his money and then he gets hit by a car. And then Eugene basically at the end takes him under his wing as like a nod to his mom that's dead. Yeah. And I'm like, so you, you're going to get supported? And Eugene and his aunt are like walking down the hallway and like, and then he said some good stuff and like apologized yeah. and was like, yeah. I'm a good person now. Yeah, I did see, but really bad. I ignored that scene. <laughs> yeah. And uh. I... I, I did like him getting run over by a car because I thought that was funny and kind of ironic. And he was right about cars. They're terrible. He was right. <laughs> right and he funny was he right about died. cars. Funny enough. But I like to imagine that it just ended. There's that part towards the end where the narration is like, and yeah, and Which everyone forgot Wells. about him. <laughs> that yeah, that was that, No one ever saw him get to his To me, that is the perfect right. ending to this film. It's like, yeah. Um, just slowly everyone forgot he right. existed and he's dead now. It's like like their wish was finally granted, but everybody, almost everyone who wanted it was dead and yeah. everybody else had forgotten about it. Like you're meaningless to everybody. Dude, Which yeah, is that the worst fate deep. for someone yeah. who thinks he's like the most important right. person yeah. in the world. Yeah. That cut deep and then it just kind of lessened its impact yeah. the yeah. last like 10 minutes of the it's show. strange. But I feel like Orson Welles like... We'll never know what his actual cut of this was. I think it's been like Oh, they lost. Like burned it up. They yeah, totally left extensive it. notes. And there have no, yeah. been like talks of like making like an animated version of his complete vision yeah. or mm-hmm. like And I think there was a documentary about those notes and what yeah, it could have looked Bogdanovich like. Bogdanovich made one in the seventies. Yeah. Think. But also the studio burned the raw material to make room for other stuff, yeah. quote unquote. Ugh. I think it was mostly out of spite. And 
you'll never know. Guess yeah. we'll never know. Which yeah. is sort of what makes this movie beautiful to me. Like, I don't the know. The mystery behind it. I love, I love so much of this buildup. Like, that shithead of a character, like, he sucks so oh, bad. he's horrible. He's one of the worst <laughs> antagonists I've seen in a long time where I'm actively rooting against him. So Orson Welles is like doing a great job of yeah. building up this villain. And yeah, the, the comeuppance doesn't happen how you want it to, but there's always that lingering question of Orson Welles' vision. Right. If we could have saw it out all yeah. the way through. Like, would it have been even better? Yeah. yeah we'll never know. And that's kind of why it's great. I think it would be better than what we got. Yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely 100%. Of course. Yeah. I know we were talking about Richard Gere last time and I, how we were all yelling at the screen for him to leave Winona Ryder alone. Yeah. And I was yelling at, the, at George, like, <laughs> let this guy fuck your mom. I Come know. On. She's yes. going to love it. Yeah. He's so happy. He's such a good dude. Yeah. He invented the automobile. There was this like very funny part and i don't think i think this was the orson wells i don't know i, I kind of wish he would have done something different with it but where um they're walking through the streets lucy and george and he's like yeah it's gonna go away for a year <gasps> oh that my god amazing. i was it's rolling so good where <laughs> she's like all right and he's like, yeah, I guess you might, you might never see me again. She's like, she hey, just no sells him so right. hard. Yeah. And yeah. it's so good. And then like, like there's cool, a scene a where time. it's like, oh, she yeah. passed Sounds out. Like because a long trip. She, but then it's like, oh, she was holding it all in. That's Brittany, she passed out because she was so heartbroken. Brittany, I had exactly the same thought. I was like, yes, yes, you go. And, I'm like, and then and then she, and then she and she I was like, no, 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 no. Like, why did that have to be like, why yeah. couldn't that have been edited out? <laughs> yeah, I 100% agree. That yeah, was exactly my reaction. That's like an old literary trope, like women get like too emotional and then like die. Yeah, <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, yeah. my but heart. But it was like, oh, what a, um, you know, very ahead of its time, humorous. Right. Scene oh my God, that, that scene was so funny. <laughs> He's like, I don't know. It's going to be a long, uh, hard trip. And she's like, well, I wouldn't go on it then if I were you. you right. Know? pack very extensively. <laughs> I will say him being very catty with his aunt where they're like making fun of each other in like a very oh, vicious bad. way. Yeah. That's very like contemporary feeling. Too. It's like Virginia Wolf a little bit. Just mm-hmm. screaming. Also, the way the movie is shot is fucking gorgeous. Yeah. Like constant yeah. rapid fire, like the most insane frame compositions you've ever seen one after another. But especially that. That like ballroom dance. Yeah. And I was reading that like he had more long one takes in that, but the studio kind of cut them down. But you could imagine like a Citizen Kane style where like he really goes for it and just follows these characters without the camera cutting. Here's the thing about that. Okay. We have Citizen Kane and it's fucking great. Yeah. This movie does not need to be lauded as one of the greatest films of all time because it's not. It's a compromised vision. Mm-hmm. The studio gutted it. It's interesting to think about and interesting to be like, what if? But that's what makes it interesting to critics. That does not mean it's a good final product. But here's the thing. Wells himself has said that he thought this was his masterpiece. Well, he's wrong. But, <laughs> but we don't know. And yeah. that I think that's why critics get really like up in arms about it because- you have one of the greatest, the guy that directed Citizen Kane saying, this is my masterpiece, but the studio cut it to shit and we'll never know what it actually looked like. And so we're just left wondering. So by putting it on the list, though, you're making a 
I mean, you and I were talking about this. You said that like some of the things you don't like are people making these like conscious, like almost political decisions of like, I'm going to put this on to position it as one of the greatest films of all time to like make sure. a yeah. philosophical point about cinema as an art form by putting this on the list, you know, in the decades past when it was there, that was people making a stand for auteurs over studios where it's like, actually, I'm going to vault this thing that you gutted because I'm standing up for Orson Welles yeah. and his vision. Yeah, yeah. But honestly, if you're looking at what actually is on the screen, it's not that vision. It's yeah. like a gutted, yeah, compromised it's, work. It's supporting RKO. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's the way I, well, the unfairness of that too is because it's like, is there another film that is well deserving of the attention that, that probably this pushed off is always kind of the, the thing in my head too. I, I think there is a really great film at the heart of this thing, but we'll never know. The whole, yeah. like, we'll never know. Yeah, maybe you got pushed off for a reason. What too. makes it fascinating. Yeah. Me. Well, and I mean, they do tell, I mean, I would not put this in my top 10 list of favorite mm -hmm. movies. They do tell the critics to be like open about their interpretation of the prompt of like, like, so it can be like your favorite or like a pinnacle of yeah. like technical achievement. So I can see why people would put this on their list as like a curiosity of film and like kind of an untapped potential. Like Vladimir Nabokov had a book that he was working on before he died and he had like all the note cards associated with. So you can buy a book of like the note cards printed in, but that's, I mean, it's not the best book of one of the greatest books of all time. Like when you're considering it as a film, it's a curiosity. Yeah. And I, I understand yeah. why it would have been on there for a period of time, but yeah, maybe it's time to, I feel like you're making a point if you list it. You're not yeah. actually being honest about objective the about the film itself. It's yeah. the idea of the film, right? And Orson Welles does have Citizen Kane on this list. Yeah. it's been here for a long time. So, like, it's not like his artistry isn't represented. Touch yeah. of Evil also fell off. I have not seen that one. I probably oh, me should either. Have. It, it sounds good. I keep it's on my my list too. <laughs> Citizen Kane fell down a couple slots, you know, make room for Jean Dielman at the top. Like, he's definitely taken a couple hits. If we're going to talk about this, like, on sports terms, you know, yeah. like, his Ooh. stats have been lowered a little bit. Hard right jab. But dude, yeah. just hearing his narration, like, oh, I love Orson voice. Welles' yeah. voice. Just hearing him talk, yeah. like, yeah. Oh I'm my a God. huge fan of his. I was so tired when I got home yesterday. And we started watching this movie and the opening monologue is like establishing the time in which the Ambersons are thriving. And it's like, and all the pretty women in the silk scarves and the velvet. And I was like, I'm falling asleep. <laughs> right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the times used to but be simpler it, and slower. You're feeling very slow. Right. It's hypnotic. the same way, but then it pulls you in with it the does, story no, it very does. quickly. It totally does. Like, and that's why it's, the heart of a I good love, film. I love that it's in Indiana. <laughs> right? Yeah. And that opening, like, 20 minutes, at, especially at, like, from when George's youth, where he's, like, tormenting the town, yeah. to mm -hmm. that, like, ballroom, I believe, like, a Christmas soiree or whatever, that is when the cinematography is at its most exciting, and the yeah. editing is, like, rapid cuts. So, like, every three seconds, like, what is that image? Oh, my God, another one. And it's, like, all shot mm. at these ridiculous low mm -hmm. angles and, like... But you don't get to that cool part of the movie 
Like it's it's sort of like you have this boring part and then it gets cool at the ballroom and then it gets less cool whenever like the family falling apart starts to happen. It's this really cool chunk in the movie. It it ices you. Like you get really yes. excited and built yeah. up and then it just like cuts you off. Uh, yeah. And maybe that's interesting to think about and I, maybe in a different context, I would be like big upping this movie more. But like if we're discussing the hundred greatest movies ever made, I don't know that you need to watch this instead of Citizen Kane. I yeah. do think... Georgie is one of the top 100 villains <laughs> of all time. Yeah. How I'll does he place next to the mother in a summer place, you know? <laughs> like <laughs> yes. Neck and neck. Yeah. <laughs> well, someone else who took some like big hits this year oh. was uh, Ingmar Bergman. Or Ingmar. Yeah. So my selection was Wild Strawberries by Ingmar Bergman, uh, directed, I believe it's 1956. 1957. Um, which came out actually the same year as The Seventh Seal and like two years after, I think it's The Summer of Smiles. Mm. Uh, it, it's kind of, this was released kind of in like, I think it's like his 13th movie or something. It's like in the middle beginning of his career and before a lot of his like most famous films. Seven Seal also fell off the list this year, which is actually really? more surprising. That's, yeah. that's my favorite Bergman, yeah. by the way. Um, so Orson Welles still has Citizen Kane on the list. Bergman still has Persona. I think it's in like 18th place. That's my favorite Bergman. Yeah. <laughs> if one's going to be on there, right. Persona's, Persona's my two. Yeah. So, I mean, and I think it's like, honestly, it's pretty wild to me for a director to have just like multiple films on the list of 100 greatest films of all time. Like, I mean, I know that they're extremely talented directors, but like, do you need, like, is it representative if you're one person, you have five films on the list? That's interesting to me in the fact that like, we were just talking about Bunuel, like losing any standing on the list whatsoever. And I wonder with him, if it's like, he has so many great movies, like maybe if people were voting for like, right. the street charm of the bourgeoisie and exterminating angel and and Chandelier, yeah that's it's true. like spreading the vote yeah that's true but yeah. for bergman that means that so many people were voting for so many of his movies right. that he used to be like taking up five six slots yeah this, like, exactly greatest movies of all time i mean list. it's like him and fellini or spielberg there's certain direct like there's so many of their yeah. films that are in the top i think antonioni maybe he only Antoni- has one yeah and what's interesting Kurosawa, about Bergman too is like, like yeah. come on, Bergman was making movies in the fifties. Like, yeah, this list started in like 1952. So like in that time, in the first like few drafts of this list, he was like contemporary and like putting this stuff out. Yeah, and it was already making the cut. So like he had a lot of dominance because he was like one of the first people in there, like right. defining the height of the, the art greatest form. films. Yeah. yeah. So I love Bergman. He's a Swedish director. Okay, so anyway, Wild Strawberries, 1957. Um, He wrote the screenplay while he was in the hospital. He was experiencing a lot of critical acclaim, but he had rocky relationships. Like his, I think his third marriage was ending. He had an affair with B.B. Anderson, who stars in this film that was also ending. And then he had some like difficulties with his parents so Wild Strawberries is about a um, a doctor, I think he's a bacteriologist, named Isak Borg, and he's traveling to a university. I, I believe he's earning an honorary professorship. Yeah. I can't remember it's like exactly. It's like once they are 
they are a prof- uh, physician or professor for like 50 years. It's sort of like that. Yeah. It's like it's a some, lifetime achievement. Award. Right. It's an honorary yeah. degree that doesn't mean shit. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. No, this guy. No, I'm just saying, like, no, you dedicated your life to this thing, but you know, clap, clap, good for you. So he's a he's a very grumpy man who um, has kind of withdrawn from a lot of his relationships. The opening monologue is like about his kind of distaste for close connections, Um, but he travels to this university by car with his daughter-in-law who is not a huge fan of him he travels with her and they meet uh various people on this journey he meets this woman uh sarah who's traveling with two young men who reminds him of a long lost love from his youth who actually married his brother and the love was his cousin right that he was oh the love was his cousin that's correct (laughs) it was his cousin we are not passing up the incest (laughs) button on this movie (laughs) i was like screaming when i saw that where i was like where he's like oh my cousin i was you know it almost seems like he's like oh good days and then it's like oh my god he he loved his cousin (laughs) yeah yeah, I, when you were saying there's another movie with incest, I was like, which, which one? one? I remember, I do yeah. remember another cousin incest thing. It. it was this one. Yes, they they were cousins. Definitely but they didn't get married. It wasn't Rio Bravo. <laughs> <laughs> it could have been on Sean right. Andalou. I don't know how those people are related. Right. Yeah. Um, so he meets this couple and they uh, travel with him and his daughter-in-law. He meets this very bitter couple who they actually get in a kind of car accident and just like an absolutely caustic relationship he visits his mother who's alone and isn't visited by her children anymore and then finally when he gets to the university he um sees his son who is in an unhappy relationship with uh his wife they um have no children she becomes pregnant and he doesn't want children they just don't they don't have a good relationship either there are no good relationships in this film except for sarah with her two hot young fellows who like absolutely adore her and cannot agree on the existence of god yeah because because every bergman has to have a conversation about the existence of god that's what um so isak is having these bad dreams and they feel kind of ominous they're symbolic of his loneliness and um his confusion and like the values that he's misplaced he has a dream that i related to (laughs) very much uh, where he's like taking an exam and he he can't really understand anything that he's doing like he they ask him to identify a bacteria he doesn't know what it is they ask him to read like the first rule of being a doctor and he can't read it Uh, so he's coming to terms with his regrets and his inability to form and maintain relationships. And on the course of this trip, he kind of starts to make an effort to repair those relationships. And while the title of the film is Wild Strawberries, and in Swedish, I absolutely can't say what this word is, but it literally means a strawberry patch or like a sentimental place with a lot of value that like is unknown to other people. Like a hidden place. Yeah, like a hidden gem. That's just for you. Yeah. And the first kind of scene, like dream scene we see with him 
while he's on the road is him like reminiscing about the strawberry patch. Um, and he's actually watching his old love, Sarah, flirting with his, or his cousin flirting with his brother. <laughs> but it's like a place that he kind of keeps coming back to and he returns there at the end of the film. And the, I liked this movie. It was very evocative. And I, I actually also loved it because my dad went to Finland to like, he was like on a PhD, like, dissertation defense committee and he like wore the same getup that this guy wears when he goes to like get his award like the long coat and the top hat like that's i don't know i think that's a doctor thing in yeah. scandinavia for some reason i'm not aware of it's really um cool. but i thought it was really sweet and sentimental and touching and and it was really moving but it's definitely not my favorite Bergman and it felt to me very grounded in like the regrets of like an older accomplished man Mm -hmm. and I think Bergman's experience was really shining through in the film so I thought it was interesting but I didn't relate very strongly to the particulars of the character even though I felt like in general I felt like it it was kind of a universal movie but it, it felt like an older male filmmaker making a movie very much from his point of view, which is like, it's not bad, but it's still not his most interesting film to me. That's interesting that you say that because I just, I felt so disconnected from his character and I couldn't, and I couldn't figure out why. And I guess that puts some insight into that. Because I'm like, why don't I give a shit about this old man? (laughs) I I thought the whole point was that he was supposed to be a huge dick. Right. And then he learns to be like not so much of a dick. Yeah. Like that's the whole trajectory of the movie. And I just right? didn't feel bad for him. You weren't, you weren't Maybe like I'm inf- becoming bitter. Were you not like infuriated with him the same way you were with George and Magnificent Oh Anderson's? no, not as much. Okay. I, George I felt for his character a little bit. And just like that whole like not appreciating what you have. Like you have things around you that are good and you have a, a son and a daughter-in-law and he has a good career and yet he treats people without respect and i don't know like he doesn't appreciate the moment like it feels like bergman was just channeling a lot of what he was going through when he was sitting on that hospital yeah bed in this character and i don't know i identify with that but it didn't give me the like weepies in the way that it was trying to go for i think like i don't know i didn't feel very emotionally affected by it yeah i had no impact from that movie <laughs> at all. you know i really liked it i think this is the other one i was going to point out is like one that might be back on the list later yeah uh-huh. not because it's anyone's favorite movie exactly but like as an entry level what is the art of cinema mm-hmm. i feel like you could teach this into a film class especially like a lot of film classes now are these 20-something-year-old kids who love Marvel movies and want to get into the business of filmmaking to make superhero movies. I'm not saying that's all film kids, but like a lot of it is that. Mm-hmm. You have to show them art films where like, this is symbolism. This is like metaphor. And this movie like spells that stuff out so clearly where like after the car crash with the like couple who are bickering, he's like, that reminds me of my failed marriage. Right. Like <laughs> It's so on the surface with what it's doing. Yeah. Um, and it has that air of like prestige of like an older filmmaker looking back and like asking 
the like what's the meaning of life question yeah there are better movies in that genre like mm-hmm. akiru from kurosawa is like way better than this yeah but the meaning of life that he does come up with is like don't be an asshole right. to other people and like it's a pretty good clear and, message and yeah. appreciate the good stuff yeah. that you have when you have it. There's more to life than complaining and telling women that they shouldn't smoke. Like you can <laughs> you can be a little more open minded and like chill. And I thought the dream sequences really worked in this yeah. for me. Like especially that first one where he's kind of wandering the streets and he's alone. Mm-hmm. And then the there's a you know the clock face that doesn't have any hands. And there's like a guy who's like a water balloon who explodes. Water on the balloon explodes. Like I loved. Like Hannah was saying, the exam sequence, um, which is also a dream. Like, I like that melding of dreams and reality and fantasy and fiction. You know, I have two questions about that. Mm-hmm. This first one is a very loaded question, but like, do you think that sequence would exist without Unshanandalu? Do you think that's like a huge influence on that filmic language? Yeah. Okay. No, I don't think it would have existed without. Yeah. And it has a more clear purpose, which I guess is my second question is like, is this a valuable film to keep in the list for like younger people who are going to look at this published list of the greatest films of all time? Like, how do I appreciate art cinema? Mm-hmm. This one holds your hand a lot. And those dream sequences have very clear meaning. place and meaning. And like the faceless clock, when you see it, you're like, what the fuck is that? And then later it's explained what it is and how yeah. it fits in his life. It's like the movie like really walks you through what an art film is. Yeah. Yeah. But then again, you're talking about like obligation versus like your true assessment of yeah. film. Like this absolutely false assessment. would not be on my top <laughs> 10. I don't know. But like, I think the other, like we were talking about with your ranking, I can't remember what the other movie, I think it was like, between EO and RRR or <laughs> another film in RRR and it was like well this is going to be a wasted vote but potentially I can oh, get this other film yeah I voted in the um, Southeastern Film Critics Association yeah. poll and I have a list of 20 movies that are my favorite movies of the year I picked 10 from those that I know they sent screeners to people's homes. Mm-hmm. My favorite movie of the year is Neptune Frost. Oh, that's right. That was what it I was. I do not expect enough yeah. people to vote for Neptune Frost for that to be on the list. So instead, I put RRR in my top slot, a movie I love, but has a better chance of right. like, listing. And it did pretty well on the SCFCA <laughs> polls. Yeah. So. so maybe there is part of that. Too. Like, not just, this is my favorite movie and I don't care what anybody else thinks. You know, it's like, what do I think is actually important? Like, what movies do I love and what is also important for the canon of film? So what I would worry about, maybe, is like the fact that like they expanded the pool to 1,600 people this time, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to assume that a lot of the people that were brought in were younger and a more diverse, wider yeah. net, right? Even older white <laughs> yeah, men. Yeah, just the oldest, white, <laughs> crustiest white men you've ever seen. So if you do that, there are going to be enough people who, if they're being honest about like the movies I enjoy the most, like let's say Jurassic Park would right. be on like that many lists. Yeah. And like, what does Jurassic Park tell you about film as an art form? Mm-hmm. I don't know that it tells you that much. And like Spielberg is not on the top 100 of all time list right now. Yeah. And I think eventually he will be, but like, I don't know that he needs to be there instead of wild strawberries. I think yeah. this is like a very like instructive film. If I was going to teach a film course, like 
This is like hold your hand baby's first art film cinema. Right. It's interesting. Like, it doesn't seem like there's like strict like criteria for how, you know, those who were selected to make their top whatever. Yeah. Or to like fill it out. So it's like, how can you trust? There is no math to trust in this. And I don't know. It's sort of like. Why is this this list better than any other movie list? Okay, because it was one of the first. Like this like ritual we do every year where we do like the top our top 10 movies of the yeah. year. Sight and Sound started publishing this in 1952. So they were one of the first to ever do it. And the film Canon was only 50 years old at the time. So like this is the first Canon of the greatest films like what defines this art form? Yeah. The art form was still relatively small. And you could conceivably have seen the most important movies ever made in in your lifetime at the time. Now it's what, like 70 years later? Like, it's so much harder to have seen, like, what's important, I think. But I actually, I don't know, I was thinking about, like, Jurassic Park as being in the top 100. Maybe it should be. Dude, and I think... I kind of think it deserves a play. I think in another 10, 20 years, like... Jurassic Park should be on there. When we think about like CGI, big budget filmmaking, Spielbergian, like huge epic stories. Like I think there will come a time where like a Jurassic Park is in the top hundred and it will replace, unfortunately, something like Wild Strawberries. Akiru. (laughs) Akiru. Right. God, I don't want that to happen. (laughs) But it will. And like that's where the needle is moving. Unfortunately, like. I don't know. Wild Strawberries feels like kind of a simpler time when it comes to filmmaking. I feel like I would want to see Jaws on the list before Jurassic Park, personally. I think that's probably a better movie just based on like what I enjoy about films. And mm-hmm. like that's sort of I like to see a human's fingerprints on the art like Jaws yeah. feels more handmade than like. Spielberg managing this multi-million yeah. dollar like huge production like but when you think about like superhero movie and Marvel movie like that's where it's going I where it's been headed for a while now I don't know about I don't know like I think one of the reasons I thought I couldn't actually see Jurassic Park being there is because and I could totally be proven wrong like there is something that doesn't work with cgi over time and yeah, like it's it worse yeah jurassic park like the the like i really enjoy that movie but the dinosaurs feel cheap the animatronics look great yeah Actually, they do. i think it holds up very well compared to a lot of other movies yeah. it does but i don't but it it is aged as soon as you it doesn't feel timeless my problem with it is like that movie made a ton of money People love it. People watch it all the time. It doesn't need to be on this fucking list. Right. Oh. <laughs> the AFI list, like if you're asking me, Brittany, like what makes yeah. this one important? Mm-hmm. The AFI, American Film Institute, like top 100 movies is full of shit like Jurassic Park right. and Jaws yeah. and yeah, yeah, like yeah. the first Iron Man or whatever the fuck else is on there. Shawshank yeah. Redemption. Those don't need to be on this other list. Like, yeah. okay, when I'm talking about kids Googling the best movies of all time, their first thing they're going to find is that AFI list. Yeah. Especially American children. They're going to find that like AFI list. What do I need to watch? And they're going to watch Goodfellas and Shawshank Redemption and Pulp Fiction and whatever else is on there. The IMDb top 100 is pretty much the same yeah. list. Mm-hmm. The next level where it's like, I'm a film nerd. I love film. This right. is my favorite art form. Sight and sound. Yeah. They go to sight and sound for that. Yeah. 
And I think it's important that movies like Unshan Andalou and Wild Strawberries are on there. Like, I think that they are very instructive about what the art form can be. Yeah. In a way that Jurassic Park isn't. And Jurassic Park is more indicative of what it became. Right. Like what it is now. Maybe later it'll have more significance once this is a thing in the past. Yeah. But like, you see movies like Jurassic Park all the time. You know, like, you don't need that to be represented like that art form is already making millions of dollars uh i mean avatars in theaters right now it's basically a echo of that yeah so i really i really liked wild strawberries sorry sorry we totally went off like a 10 minute <laughs> I mean, this is what I, hard to talk about because of yeah. that like you get these like bigger topics yeah no yeah. of course <laughs> and it did like one thing that really did resonate even though this felt like like this is coming from a perspective that I see that is outside of myself. I totally resonated with, you know, there are relationships that you don't nurture or that you like kind of allow to grow wild and you can, you know, come to regret that later in your life. And it's hard to reflect on that and feel loneliness. And then there is also like hope in the idea that you're always a person that can make a different decision and can choose to relate to people differently, like up until the end of your life, even if that doesn't absolve you completely of how you have treated people in the past. Like I, th- I thought that that was very poignant. Um, I really loved the scenes of him like in the strawberry fields as a child. And it's not my favorite Bergman film, but I think I do agree that it's much more accessible than Persona is. And I think it is a very instructive film that is like interesting and does use metaphor and abstract concepts, but is still very understandable. I think it's really cool that Persona is still on there. Like if yeah. one's going to be on there, like yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a weird fucking movie. Right. Mm-hmm. I think it- <laughs> Yeah, Persona is like the weirdest. Seven Seal is like the most badass, like metal playing chess with death. Through a Glass Darkly is pretty weird too. <laughs> yeah. This one is the most like melancholic and mm-hmm. in a way like the sweetest movie he's done. And I don't know. It like, could also be the sweetest. Oh. <laughs> it is pretty damn sweet. It's very sweet. It very... But it, I don't know. It, it's hard to pick a Bergman. Yeah. Um, I want at least one Bergman to be on the list at all times. If we can just rotate them, I don't know. Yeah. But And I think Persona being the one that sticks around is pretty indicative of like the list inching more towards like women's stories and women's art. Like yeah. that's a very femme film. Yeah. Uh, in its aesthetics anyway. Yeah. And that's entirely opposed to the next movie we're talking about, which is like super macho, <laughs> uh, which is, may, might be why it fell off. So I've probably seen 20 John Wayne movies, but I don't <laughs> remember any of them because growing up, my grandmother, John Wayne was her favorite movie star by far. Like I have very faint memories of being at her house and there was always a John Wayne movie on in the background and like. I don't know, growing up, I kind of had this idea of John Wayne that, I don't know, that he was a racist and he sucked and his movies sucked. I think I think that's largely true. Yeah. 
I, when I read his like Wikipedia and watch video, like his politics, whatever. I don't care about that side of him. I think what I'm interested in with Rio Bravo is like the idea of John Wayne as a movie star. And so Rio Bravo came out in 1959. This is kind of the like peak of John Wayne as the idea of like the Western superhero. And this movie was directed by Howard Hawks. And this is kind of like your quintessential Western hangout film where you have John Wayne, who plays as Sheriff Chance. You know, he's the sheriff of the small town. And he has a deputy played by Dean Martin, who goes by the dude, (laughs) just dude. (laughs) Which is very jarring in modern parlance. Like, the dude is asking where you are. The dude abides. The dude abides. (laughs) And he's like a recovering alcoholic. And they're trying to essentially protect this town from these bandits, like the faceless evil and they have the jailer who is like maybe one of the best character actors. Stumpy. I, old Stumpy. Old Stumpy. Stumpy. Which, who talks in that like old, like, oh, not. <laughs> like a gold prospector. Ja- oh, yeah. gold prospector. Like, James has done the gold prospector voice so many times, like in the last seven years. And hearing Stumpy, it's like, Exactly the That's same voice. That's what it's from. Yeah, yeah. It made me very happy. He's definitely an archetype that has been like yeah, echoed yeah, in yeah. other stuff, and probably that character actor played him under a different name in like fifty different westerns. Yeah, absolutely. So, general plot of Rio Bravo is like the brother of this really influential gangster type. He kills some guy in a saloon. He gets locked up in the jail, and his brother's thugs try to break him out. And so essentially it is a hangout film where John Wayne and Dean Martin have to kind of hang out and just protect the town. And, you know, he has a love interest as well, but a lot of this film is like dudes hanging out, talking about their feelings, drinking, uh, shooting things. Like it's a really cool laid back kind of film and there is a lot of violence and it is very masculine but i've again this is my first time kind of revisiting john wayne and his aesthetic and i was totally endeared by it i thought this was maybe the funnest movie of all the ones we watched and like it was a blast for me i don't know like maybe i'm just that type of dude where like i want to hang out with john wayne and dean martin as a recovering drunk. And Stumpy. And Stumpy. Oh, and the, Stumpy. Like, oh, Stumpy. And the quips. And like, <laughs> but the characters grow and they have a real brotherhood amongst them that I dug a lot. And like, John Wayne is like cool as shit in this movie. Like, he is so fatherly. And I see the faces. <laughs> like, y'all are not agreeing with me, but I like. I thought that John Wayne was like younger. And the peak of his career than he really was. Cause I always thought he was like this like hearthrob type guy for some oh, reason. I don't think it was ever a hearthrob. It was more like a patriarchal 
This was my he's first like the father John Wayne. Yeah, like he's I'm like, like a father figure. I'm like, oh, this is an old man. Is he supposed to be yeah. hot or something? But, so where did this <laughs> film fall in terms of his career? Because I think he was. It's like middle of yeah. his. It's like career. the height of his stardom. Yeah, gotcha. yeah, height yeah. of his stardom. Like I just thought he was younger for some reason when he was. Yeah, I don't know. But like, man, he is charismatic as hell. Dean Martin's character has like an arc. Yeah. In this movie where he's like struggling with his alcoholism and like a big part of the movie is like competency. Like, hey, are you going to put the bottle down and be a good sheriff? Like, can I trust you? Mm-hmm. And Dean Martin's character is like kind of struggling with that. And there's this fatherly aspect to it. And John Wayne, I don't know. Like, I thought his performance was really like heartwarming in a kind of old Western daddy style I personally loved it, and there's a great musical scene where they're all playing guitar. And they and form singing. a band. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they form a band, and they sing a couple songs. And this, to me, is like quintessential hangout, cool dude, Western flick. And it's no longer on the, you know, on the list we're talking about. Does it need to be? Yeah. Like, we were just talking about it does. Jurassic Park, like, not being on here because it's like... I'm going to go to the epitome of a certain movie. type of genre. Like yeah. this is a pretty like down the middle western. Maybe it's a very charming one because the characters are charming, but like I don't know. What does it do to like represent the height of the art form? It's it might be a good hangout comedy, but like well, is I think it great in the, in the sense that none of us like westerns. I don't, I don't like westerns. I, I did like Johnny Guitar when we did our Johnny episode. Guitar should be on the hundred grand. <laughs> yeah, oh, okay. that was <laughs> sure, sure. That made me really I, like get into the western to like. The old school masculine style Western. Macho Western. Macho Western. This to me is the pinnacle. And it's exactly what like, you know, when you talk about like Tarantino loves to do like hangout films. and Tarantino should not be in charge of what's the best movies of all time. No, but I'm saying like, <laughs> I've heard a lot about in the past like couple of years about the idea of a hangout film. Yeah. Uh-huh. Just cool characters hanging out. Yeah. Well, this was happening 70 years ago and it was done better than it's done than I've seen recently. Like you still want to hang out with these guys. I want to hang out with these dudes. Like I want to hang out with Stumpy and I want to <laughs> hang out with like the dude like struggling with his drinking. I want to hang out with like John Wayne, like kind of giving words of advice and moral compass, moral compass. Man, like huh? I dug it a lot. <laughs> like this movie did it. For me, like I had more fun with this than anything else that we watched for this episode. So I like Westerns. They're not my go-to genre. Like if if you give me like science fiction or horror, then or like fairy tale, whatever, I'm just going to watch it no matter what. But I think I love Westerns that deal with like the cruelty of like primal justice. And... You know, so you said that Dean Martin's character has like a whole arc. I I think that he is like basically the main character of this story, which is so like the entire bar fight starts because he wants a drink and he's looking for money. And this guy like throws a quarter in the spit jug with a spittoon. So it's like. His alcoholism is what starts all of this off and like leads to the murder and leads to the jailing of the brother. And then 
he has to learn how to like get off the wagon basically in order to defend the town effectively and john wayne's part is like trying to figure out how to get him there and i think that i think that that is like an interesting story i thought there was some like like tenderness and companionship and like how to be a the good negotiation father, like to either tough love or you know yeah like the negotiation of male relationships yeah. and like trying to figure out how to support your peers i don't care particularly for john wayne i I thought his romantic lead was like hot as hell. She but others, cool. yeah, she was very cool. But I like did not like their relationship particularly. <laughs> She's into him being a sheriff, right? And he plays like a sheriff to her, like in the bedroom, kind of. I like their dynamic, but not. I mean, he could have been fucking anybody for it to work. Yeah. It just reminded me that like so. I'd rather be watching any other Howard Hawks movie. Like, yeah. Howard Hawks has this rapid fire flirtatious dialogue and yeah. stuff like bringing a baby mm-hmm. and like his like romantic comedies that is like so fun mm-hmm. and fast and like exciting and like her flirting with him by like teasing him about wearing women's underwear or like, you know, yeah. no, watching that was her wonderful. strip like fantastic. But story. I didn't think but this I, was fun and exciting. I could not tell you the difference between this and like three episodes of Bonanza like loosely Oh strung together like that is so i just don't unfair. have the vocabulary to watch this it's so boring to me that like, is so unfair it's a hangout comedy you are correct about that or a hangout movie to enjoy hanging out with the movie you have to enjoy the characters there are two characters i enjoy which is stumpy and the um romantic interest Feathers. and they're like pretty minimized wait you so you didn't enjoy dean martin's character at all watching him sweat and like feel bad about drinking over and over and over again. I don't feel this much of an arc. He keeps making the same mistake over and over and over again throughout the film. So you're just like John Wayne's character, like you don't give him any humanity. Like he's struggling and you're just like, I had the same reaction to this Bernie had to wild strawberries. So I was just watching it. It had no effect on me emotionally, (laughs) visually. That's crazy to me. Like this movie, I was like having such a blast. Like it's so fun. You didn't I was feel bored any out of, of my that. skull. Yeah. Wow. I was like, when will this end? <laughs> For wow. like most of it. Man, I'm sorry. I'm not upset, but I, I think this is indicative of a type of movie that was once very popular among film critics that like doesn't have a, as prominent yeah. of a place in the canon anymore. And like personally, I understand why that's happened because I don't connect to this type of filmmaking either so like i'm not i'm not sad to see it go i think there are better films that could take this slot and i don't think it'll be back (laughs) i think this one's done and i think that's sort of a shame like again i never really appreciated it when i saw it originally and now watching back of like it's kind of the same way when i watch like old noir movies i'm like man that was a time i wasn't really in it when it was happening but i kind of appreciate it now for what it was and I appreciate a good like John Wayne Western, and I I like John Wayne. I don't, and like this I movie's do. like production was you don't specifically like, John Wayne. like catering to his <laughs> worldview, where it was like a repudiation of High Noon, which I also haven't seen. But like the the point of the movie was like 
John Wayne thought it was un-American and unmasculine to ask for help. So yeah. he wanted to make yeah. a movie where no one asks for help and the community doesn't save the day. A, a rugged, masculine individual does. Yeah, and to me, uh, like, how fucking boring and how, like, unrelatable. So like, do you like High Noon, though? I haven't seen it. I have no interest. I think this is better than High Noon. <laughs> Couldn't tell you. Couldn't tell the difference between that one and Bonanza either. So then either. why are you even bringing it up? Because <laughs> it's, it's it's an interesting point. That's If that's the point of the movie. No, his whole thing, like he was anti-communist and he was like, these socialists are entrenching themselves in Hollywood and High Noon is all about like, one man can't do it. He needs a community. And John Wayne and the d- director were like, well, fuck that. No, it's about like one strong person individualism can like defeat all these bad guys. I think that's exactly what bores me about Westerns actually. Like that pinpoints it for me. That's not an interesting story or like the focus on that one character. Yeah. Like I've seen that done in a way that is interesting in the eighties, especially like those like Arnold Schwarzenegger type, like commando movies. Isn't that the same? But that is such an over the top caricature of masculinity that it becomes like, wait, so John Wayne and this is not an over-the-top character <laughs> of masculinity? Are you kidding me? I don't me? think that he is an over-the-top. No, I think he is just the main object of it. Like no, he's, he's over-the-top, and he's like the paternal father figure to all these characters, and he's giving them like very sweet... He's very sweet in this movie. Like That's the struggle with this character. He's like, how do I deal with this alcoholic son? Like mm-hmm. I want to be sweet and paternal, but I also want to hit him hard and like you know tough love he's like struggling with how do i be a good dad in this situation i see him as a lot more stoic than that he's just like very sure of himself and like just kind of like remains the same and remains a brick and people kind of bounce off of him no i i think he has nuance maybe i didn't give enough credit i was pretty bored by the whole thing (laughs) i think you went into it like wanting to be bored i've seen things that this influence that i enjoy like carpenter's assault on pre-613 that is like a carpenter said like he was very influenced by the idea of like a group of people with this outside force like trying to come in and you have to band together to defeat them baccarat also, yeah, I wouldn't exist without this. Yeah, I, th- I think that is a, an element of Westerns that I really like, like kind of the siege defense, like we're this outpost of something and we're being assaulted from all sides constantly by threats that we have to defend ourselves against. But in this like particular movie, the the stakes weren't as high as in other Westerns because it's like. You know, it's a person that we have a relationship, some kind of relationship you to with the whole town. No, but it's because they're like, you know, the brother was in jail. I don't know. It's like not on the same scope as some other Westerns, which is not a bad thing. It was just like the like there's some Westerns where like whoever the assailing party is comes through and like like burns the buildings down you know i'm not saying that this movie needed to be that but it was like it was a smaller scale which is fine but it's not like my favorite iteration of the, the Hannah, western I that's watched what i'm this saying movie with you and you were howling at no i thought it was stumpy 
I love Stumpy. Everyone Stumpy's loves Stumpy. Great. That right. is very clear. We all love okay, Stumpy. I'm just I saying, love like, Stumpy. I love Feathers. Everyone loves Stumpy. Okay. Everyone loves I, the, like, I liked, the I musical did, scenes. I did like Dean Martin. Everyone loves Dean Martin. Not a, so <laughs> what are we arguing? Like, it was a the, great I think, fucking no, Western. I think the it's argument, entertaining as fuck. The argument is not, about? is this a good movie? Like, okay, Brandon clearly did not enjoy the movie at all. I don't care whatever. about it. Yeah, in did not. Direction. Okay, Brandon did not care about the <laughs> Brandon movie. Brandon is wrong. I I did enjoy the movie. <laughs> I do not think it needs to be on the BFI 100 list. And I think what you were saying about the stakes being low is precisely what people value about it. Is like if you're going to praise it as a hangout movie that is a shoot 'em up western, like that is what people are saying. Is like it's not the shoot 'em up parts that I care about. It's like. In westerns, I like the characters. I like the scenery. Yeah. I want mm. to spend time with them. Yeah, and this one finds a way to slow everything down. So, it, like, kind of boils it to the parts that people actually care yeah. about, and that's why this got elevated. Yeah, and I get like I don't care about the violence and like the action necessarily, but I do care about the stakes, like oh. I, that the danger of living in the wild west, and like the constant struggle of trying to maintain a sense of integrity like that's very interesting to me and this is a smaller scale which is still enjoyable like it doesn't need to be a different thing it's just that that it doesn't resonate with me as much i know you say small scale but stumpy is throwing <laughs> dynamite and john wayne is shooting it out of the air they're wild that's some no, wild but, shit. No, it is like, wild, but that's it, high stakes. It's, it's, no, it, but that's like a fun. It, it's, it's it's a fun, fun scene. But I feel like I. This think, is a fun movie. I understand what no you're saying. No one had fun. Like it would have been cooler <laughs> no, if it would have been like have fun. a more Jesus badass, Christ. like actiony mm-hmm. moment of just not a couple of pew 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 pew. pew. Right. <laughs> you know, just like yeah, a big it was old 1959. Like... Jesus Christ. No, no, it's fine. Let's some dynamite. We did. They but threw dynamite, dynamite at the building. And, and in 1929, they were cutting open eyeballs on the camera. <laughs> yeah, and then like the other 19 minutes was boring as fuck. I, I mean, disagree with that. Yeah, it was boring as fuck. I mean, come on, dude. <laughs> All right. Well, Brittany, how do you feel about this? Yeah. Weigh in. Um, I thought the story was cool. This helped me dissect why I don't like westerns. And I'm like, okay, I didn't hate the story. But why wasn't I like, oh, this is a good movie. Like, there was something missing. And I'm like, if this would have been, like, in a fucking forest with a bunch of, like, pioneer dudes, I might have liked it more. I think it's the environment that I I don't like. I think it's, like, everything's beige and dusty and boring. And, like, everyone looks sweaty. Like, there's not a lot of beauty in it. And I Yeah, because it's the West. This is a Technicolor feature <laughs> it's film. It's fucking West. And when we watch the that's Technicolor. That's what the West looked like. But when what we you watch a Technicolor about? movie, you want know, to be. I, I think that's why I just, I just don't like the West. And yeah. it's, there's nothing to look at. I but agree I, with Brittany on this. But it's I not like fun to the look spectacle at. of the West in that it's dusty and ugly and disgusting. Like, yeah. that's what the West I, looked like. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. What, you wanted to look like a mountain fairy? town yeah. like you know what is a western that looks fucking beautiful is johnny guitar yeah yeah <laughs> and right, has a lot more it, pops of color cool it has and that vibrancy queer and it pops of color and yeah, i mean all those things are true you can be dismissive all you want those when are you true. can be dismissive of this movie which is a fucking fun ass movie 
Do not let these people dissuade you <laughs> of this. No one's talking ass- anyone out of watching this. Like right. your grandfather's no, always I, falling asleep with it on the and, TV. No, you're, and again, you're like, the grandfather here. No, but I'm I'm not saying this isn't a fun movie. Like it clearly is. I appreciated the central story. I loved Stumpy. I loved Feathers. The, but this wouldn't be in my top 100 movies. Like if even if yeah, I that- like, let alone 10. It wouldn't be in my top 100, but that doesn't mean it's not fun. Like, it is all of those things. But thinking of putting it on the BFI, like, that's not what I prioritize. I agree that it's, like, a beautiful film, and I like the way that Westerns look. I do like the kind of, like, harsh beige. It's like I feel like sand is hitting me. Like, And that's the thing I like about Westerns. Like, I like feeling like... I'm deprived of water. <laughs> I would say there was a time when Westerns were like one of the top genres yeah. in film. And this is to me, I've seen a couple or quite a few, and this is the most fun Western I've seen. And the first John Wayne movie I've seen where I'm like, I get John Wayne. I like John Wayne. I understand why he was a huge movie star for 30, 40 years. Does it deserve to be on there right now? No, mm-hmm. probably not. And that's why it's away. But goddamn, this is a fun movie. And I am pissed that like y'all are shitting on it because it's a fun fucking movie. No one's saying it's bad. We're just saying we didn't react to it strongly. Like it's, it's well, not- no, but you were like, I'm bored by it. That's honest. I mean, I was <laughs> really. <laughs> yes. And you're I have bored seen- by Stumpy. No, Stumpy's great. No one's he was the, he was the most bored, exciting Across part. the board, everyone loves Stumpy. That is not up for debate. And you were bored by D. Martin's yes. character and John Wayne. And the and hot kid the, who you have not mentioned once. Yes, I was bored by him too. <laughs> and were you bored by the musical sequence? Like yes. three quarters? Really? Yes. That was transcendent to me. Okay. <laughs> I right. disagree. Like, or personally, I didn't feel react the same what way. Do, Unchin Andalu, man, that was. I find that film riveting. I think it riveting. has. I think it has. I, found, rich, I was bored to tears. I think that one's Besides rich the, the with the possibilities the of what cinema can be. Oh my this god! This movie is rich with what, what cinema was for twenty years, and I'm glad it isn't anymore. Oh my god! What a terrible take. I just personally don't feel like much was lost by this falling off the list. I don't think it needs to be seen as like part of the canon, it, even if it is a very fun movie and enjoyable and. If you like all the characters, it's a fun hang. I, I, don't, I just don't see what's really like shining about it that you can't find in other Westerns. Yeah. I don't think the conversation would be this, would be as like detracting if it wasn't in the context of like the BFI yeah. list. Like yeah. if we were having a conversation about Westerns generally, I would be like, this w- it's not like my favorite Western, but it's, it was good and I really liked it. But like, it's just talking about it falling off of the sight and sound. Like, is that fair or not? I just don't feel like I've watched enough Westerns to have like right. a legit opinion. To that's like probably more true for that's me. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I don't know if this is a good one or if this is a bad one. This Other than Johnny uh, Guitar, wait, this is the second one I've ever seen in my life. This isn't my favorite Western. Well, what's your favorite Western? I, I don't know. 
my don't, favorite. Don't grill her. <laughs> no, but when you say stuff like that, like, well, this isn't my favorite Western. Just say but, Johnny Guitar. <laughs> yeah, because everyone loves Johnny Guitar. Because it's a this, great fucking movie. Get the fuck out of here. Come it's on. Really, it's, it's really good. good. It's really good. Yeah. It's good. Okay. <laughs> this is really good, too. I wouldn't feel one way or the other if, like, one year it was this and one year it was that. But do you think this movie will or should be back on like the 2032 draft? No, it will never be back. It won't be. It's the and least that's likely what, to come back on. And this that's kind of why I like it. It feels like it's going <laughs> away. We're done with this type I of thing. I also like that it's going away. <laughs> no, but you like it going away because you hate it and you don't respect it's it. It's a strong word. No, and I, I like it going away because like I respect it. It was a time and a place. It served its purpose. It served its purpose. Right. And I see the appeal. Okay. I like it for what it is. And, you know, I'm going to defend it. But <laughs> Like a small town that's been raided. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All y'all are the fucking raiders here. Yeah. Okay. People talking about their favorite Western. you never seen a Western. I, I struggle to stay awake through the entirety of them. Yes, this is yeah, accurate. We, <laughs> next episode I pick, we're going to do a Western. That's a great episode. topic. I love this topic. That'd be an interesting thought experiment. Thought experiment. Well, I mean, honestly, like <laughs> trying to get me into westerns. When we brought, thought well, when we brought up like Johnny Guitar, exercise. it was in the context of like, what genres don't we like? Let's try to make ourselves like them. And I really enjoyed that movie. <laughs> so I, yeah, I mean, it's kind of the point of the show is us pushing our, ourselves. Um, it, it just doesn't always work out where I fall in love with everything we watch. Which is probably more exciting to listen to than when we're going around and we're like, yes, that was good. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoyed it too. Very nice. Very nice movie. Is this fun for y'all? Like, <laughs> It's fun for me. I know it's not like, fun for everybody. Seriously, else. like, I like these like bigger topics where we like discuss like the art form of movies in like this like bigger yeah. picture way. But uh, it's also like more abstract than when we're just talking about like a smaller subject. Yeah. I like it. No, I it, do it, like it. Yeah. Like it, it pushes me to watch shit that I'll never watch because I'm like a lazy movie watcher where a lot of times I'm like, go and explore Brittany. And then I'm like, I think I just like want to watch Mrs. Doubtfire again. You know <laughs> what I mean? I'm like, I get caught in that trap and it kind of pushes me to like, watch shit that i would a hundred percent avoid mm-hmm. yeah so we would get tired if we did this every single week but like yeah. it's important no, to do it's, it sometimes it's good i will say looking at like what fell off and what was added i think the newer crop of movies speaks more to like what i enjoy seeing in cinema yeah more than mm-hmm. what fell off i i could say that pretty decisively maybe when we get in the particulars is when we start arguing <laughs> <laughs> about what that means i think you and i bickering is the core of the show and uh, how it started and <laughs> It seems like That's where it's it'll never end stop. Too, yeah. Me and Brittany in the wings, like little little doves flying it's in. Like I'm sorry. <laughs> no. it makes it sound very It's bad. a magical thing. <laughs> Someone's got to be old stumpy, not causing any ruckus. In the That's background. right. I do apologize for yelling. Oh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen like you got you lit up when you were talking about your boy John Wayne. Like you were a total fan. I think it's because, seriously, from the heart, my grandmother, rest in peace. Yeah. We had so many conversations on the phone where we would talk about like old movies and John Wayne was her guy. Yeah. You know, and like, she loved John Wayne. She would always talk about like, have you seen this John Wayne movie, this John Wayne? And like, I ignored it and I was kind of like, I'm not going to watch any John Wayne and something about 
watching this movie clicked. It's like, I get why my grandmother would be enamored with him for like 30 years, 40 years of her life. Like, this is my movie star. And I don't know, something clicked and I like, I have to defend it. He's an American icon, like an yeah. Elvis or a Marilyn yeah, Monroe. Kind of like, yeah. He's a symbol. You yeah. know what? Uh, okay, I was thinking about that because I was reading about John Wayne. Like, I was thinking about icons who have, like, created their own, like Marilyn Monroe. And, like, John Wayne was Marion Robert Morrison. And he was from Iowa. You know, like, <laughs> just, like, those days of icons are gone. Where, like, truly your identity mm-hmm. was forged like by Hollywood, basically. Yeah. And like, I think he's a really fascinating fixture in like the American psyche. Yeah, I, you know, I get like his politics sucked and his Playboy interview was awful, talking about Native Americans and this and that. But like, I don't know, the same way I love Elvis, I am coming to love John Wayne. It's that old school Hollywood mentality. It's the same reason I love noir films. I'm just like an old school kind of guy, I think. And something about it, it really endears me. Is this a bad time to bring up that I don't care about Elvis either? <laughs> Save that for another conversation. No, I feel like that's the push and pull of me and Brandon. Like, he doesn't like Elvis. He doesn't like John Wayne. Me and Chuck D are one And he that. doesn't like David Lynch, who loves... I like some David Lynch. But David Lynch idolizes those Americana. older yeah. Americana figures. And like, I love all of that shit. That's my bag, dude. So when you're shitting on Rio Bravo, like, I'm going to get heated and defend it. And you know what? The two most famous film critics of all time did not get famous for getting along. They <laughs> spatted publicly, <laughs> insulted each other's weight and baldness on national yeah. television. And that's why we know who their names are. And the two women that were on that show. (laughs) We're working off camera. (laughs) (laughs) 